This is an ABC podcast. I believe it was about maybe 2005, just on a lark, I googled my name and I found it listed on a website that was all in Icelandic. So I contacted the administrator of the website and I asked you know, what it was about because my name was on there, my entire family, you know, all of their names were on there. He said, well, essentially you and I are related and we're related to this person who was a slave in the West Indies and he you know, told me the whole story. Whether you know it or not, your family probably hides some secrets. When I was uh, a little girl, uh, it was not so much uh, talk about Hans Jonathan. I really didn't know about him uh, until I was a teenager or something. Transgressions of faith, loyalty, politics, or in the case of this family, a stranger in a stranger's skin, a symbol of a brutal past. I had uh, a hint of uh, one family uh, destroying uh, family photos of the grandchildren or great-grandchildren showing uh, Afro features. They had this uh, dark hair and this, uh, this high, uh, not high, high <laughs> cheekbones. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I, I'm better in Danish and, and English. <laughs> I'm Rebecca Huntley. Today on The History Listen, the epic tale of a young man's fight for his freedom. Hans Jonathan was born into slavery in the West Indies, but died in a small town in remote Iceland. His life was shaped by the forces of the slave trade, capitalism and the desires of a colonial empire. Even though he lived over 200 years ago, the last pages of his story are still being written. We join Miyuki Okiranta in the unlikely setting of a genetics laboratory in Iceland. My father was born in Dupeborg, which is the fishing village where Hans Jonathan came ashore. And he was, Hans Jonathan was sort of a mythical figure in the history of the village. Dr. Kauri Stephenson sits across a vast desk from me at Decode, a genetics laboratory he founded in Iceland that's encased in blonde wood and glass. And my father was very much interested in the story, and when he wrote his, the autobiography of his early years, he wrote a chapter about Hans Jonathan. Basically, he looked at this as a, as a, a very beautiful story of, of how this poorly educated fishing community was accepting of someone who was very different. The first black man ever to set foot on Iceland. This mythical figure, the first person of colour in Iceland, would eventually converge with Kauri's work in genetics. About 20 years ago, he had the idea to recreate Hans's genome. Ten years ago, Decode started work. My name is Olavia, and I am Stefan's daughter. In Iceland, you live with your mother and father's name, folded into yours. Olavia is Stefan's daughter. And uh, 
It's my father and it's my grandfather. Stefan Johan. is Johan's son. And then it's uh, Hans uh, Ludvigsson and it's Ludvig uh, Jonathanson and it's Hans Jonathan. The heavily inked lines of the family tree have been replaced with an online database called the Islendinger Bok, another decode project. It contains the genealogical records of an estimated 95% of all Icelanders born since 1700. From this database, about a quarter of Hans Jonathan's 800 descendants were found. Olavia volunteered for the study. And, and yeah, we all gave our sample. We knew that a bunch of people in Iceland he had partial African ancestry and we could go into the genomes and we could pull out the pieces that came from Africa and we could patch them together into an, a half of the African genome. So when you sequence a chromosome going from one end to another, when you, when you come into an African piece, it is so vastly different because it is, uh, there is so much more polymorphism, so much di more diversity in that sequence. In genetic circles, the study was remarkable because it was able to reconstruct his maternal genome in the absence of any physical remains. But for Hans's descendants, it offered one more piece for the puzzle. It pointed to where his mother may have come from, somewhere in West Africa, potentially Benin, Nigeria or Cameroon. We, we used a very sophisticated, expensive technology to underscore a story that in, a, in and of itself was very beautiful and, and it was nice to be able to point people to that story. Hi. Stina, are you going to yeah. come and navigate this young woman out to the building? I will do that. Thank you. Okay. Hans's story begins several thousand kilometres away with the vast and brutal Danish slave trade of the 1700s. Iceland was one of Denmark's colonies, but the empire stretched around the world. Things were brewing in the metropoles of Europe, in London, Paris, Copenhagen, etc. And plantation running became a, a dynamic venture economically and, and extremely productive. Slave ships would uh, bring loads of humans to, uh, to the Caribbeans and, and some other places. And this uh, labor power would be used uh, cheaply on, on uh, expanding plantations. How much did sugar factor into Denmark's rise as a colonial power? It's not that well known uh, publicly even nowadays that Denmark was among the big powers. I mean, they caught or bought lots of slaves in, in West Africa and ran these colonies in the, in the Virgin Islands. Gisli Paulsen is Professor of Anthropology at the University of Iceland and author of The Man Who Stole Himself, The Slave Odyssey of Hans Jonathan. In the town of St. Croix, now the US Virgin Islands, then the Danish West Indies, Hans's mother, Emilia Regina, was handed over with an inventory of chattel when the Schimmelmann family took over La Reine Sugar Plantation. The Schimmelmanns were an empire of its own. I mean, it was a German family originating in Dresden. 
the center of the Schimmelmann power was in, in Copenhagen and Herr Schimmelmann, the owner, was uh, not just a, a plantation owner, he, he was the governor of the Danish West Indies. And into the smell of sugar, sweat and servitude, Hans was born. I mean, he was the son of a, a white Dane in all probability. Um, classified as a mulatto, according to the records. He must have been in a special context in the field because house slaves were not really one of the field slaves. So, I mean, they lived in the dormitories of the owners and the aristocrats, uh, somewhat protected from the uh, rough field sites. And somewhat protected, I imagine, from the uh, rebellions and, and criticisms and anger, etc. And, and somewhat exposed to the nice sides of uh, aristocratic life. And I mean, Hans Jonathan presumably learned to read and write soon and different languages. And so that's a kind of peculiar position of enslavement and still belonging to a, a very European, aristocratic and rich household. How did Hans Jonathan end up in Copenhagen? We know for a fact that his mother left with the Schimmelmans when the governor is at least thinking about resigning or, or giving up the, the job. And, and the business is probably declining. For some reason, Hans Jonathan is left behind at the age of three or four and he only leaves for Copenhagen when he's about seven and uh, joins the household in Amaliagade, in the center of Copenhagen, uh, literally in the heart of the colonial regime. So it was after I moved here to Copenhagen and when I realized that I was actually living across the street from where Hans Jonathan lived. Hans joined his mother in the Schimmelmans in the walled city around 1791 and lived in a house one block away from the royal palace. Centuries later, fifth-generation descendant Kirsten Flom would move over from the US and serendipitously into a home directly opposite. Seeing where he lived every day, um, kind of brought it home a bit more. You know, he was, I think, fairly well treated. He was educated. He spoke several languages. He played the violin. He probably had it better than some people. But at the same time, he was still considered property. In an intense and vibrant city, bars, public squares, the constant flow of ideas and collision of opinions... His sense of possibility of freedom is, is born during these encounters. I, I imagine he was reading Rousseau and uh, engaging with uh, the growing discourse in Copenhagen about colonies and, and plantations and freedom and slavery. Is there a point where you think he was able to see outside of himself or outside of the properties that were attributed to him? I think this comes uh, gradually, but also in, in quantum leaps. 
gradually in the sense that he's a kid, he's a teenager, he starts expanding his universe to the next streets. And, but there are quantum leaps too, and the uh, Battle of Copenhagen is, is, uh, is the major quantum leap. Britain didn't want Denmark to align itself with France in the Napoleonic Wars. And so it was only a matter of time before British ships would arrive in Copenhagen's harbour. Hans, at 17, could have thought this was his ticket out. If he could prove his alliance to the Danes, they might set him free. In 1801, he enlists, goes to war to free himself, and survives, but returns a slave. After that, he rebels and He's resisting and coming in late and coming and going, and at some point he's beaten up. Uh, Schimmelmann herself takes the cane and, and beats him, and, and it seems that that's the second quantum leaps, so to speak. The General's Widow versus the Mulatto. Case 345-1801. Frau Schimmelmann mounts a legal case against Hans to establish that she was his owner and could sell him back to St. Croix for the amount he was worth, before the rumours came true and slavery collapsed completely. And the court decided that Hans Jonathan was um, a property of, of Frau Schimmelmann and she was um, entitled to sell him if, if she wanted. And he was now uh, liable to be caught by Henrietta and her associates in, in Copenhagen and uh, brought back or sent to the West Indies. So he knew that and, and, and decided uh, he would have to leave. You stand there. Okay. And I'll show you something that you might find interesting. Here, see? I've arrived in East Iceland, to a town about 100 kilometers north of where Hans originally landed, in, we think, 1802. The snow covering everything is so white, so reflective, you can't tell the footpath from the road. I've slipped and skated my way to the Technical Museum, established by Hans Jonathan's grandson, Johan Hansson. Johan was a master mechanic. He innovated shipbuilding and was the first to bring hydroelectricity to East Iceland. What is it? Oh, it's a lathe. Oh, this is the lathe. This is the lathe here. This is. So all this machinery is connected to the central axis of the belt like this. So this is the drill, this is the hammer, this is the saw. I like it a lot. Huh? <laughs> you like it, huh? Pietur Christiansen is now the director of the museum. When you got to Dupuwar, he probably would have seen a small trading post with a nice harbour with a difficult uh, inlet. He wouldn't have seen any roads. He would have seen a traditional Icelandic society with... Uh, footpaths, maybe a few turf huts, not very many wooden houses. Uh, you would have seen the Factor's House, which is one of the old, oldest houses now in Iceland, still standing. Basically a Danish trading post. 
in a very remote part of Iceland, actually. The merchant's wife and assistant Jonathan recommended taking a mountain route, but I soon regretted it. Et sted, omtrent 8 til 10 fagne i længden, we had to ride along a high mountain. In one place there was a narrow path, only wide enough for one person, 8 or 10 fathoms in length. Hans first appears in the memoir of Githa Thorlasius. Githa Thorlasius. In 1803. Finally, I found confirmation indirectly through uh, biographical works uh, by Danes. Uh, a woman who had been in in Eastern Iceland, and uh, she describes uh, a crew coming by boat over to the place where she lived, and she named the the people that come. Jeg bad om at måtte vente lidt for at samle mod og kræfter, men det hjalp ikke. Nu mindes jeg, at Sankt havde foræret mig en halv flaske. That evening we reached Thorvaldstadiet in Breidalur. We travelers slept that night in a barn, lying there in the hay. Ladies in one corner, Jonathan and the escorts in another. The last ship set sail from Copenhagen in autumn, before winter seas rolled in. Hans escaped within weeks of the verdict, possibly days. His path still dictated by the trade routes. He lands in another Danish colony. He speaks several languages, and he's practically a native Dane, and speaks the language of the colonizers, and manages to establish a contact with the uh, storekeeper at the time, the factor, as they were called. And then he met this Icelandic girl. So maybe that helped? My name is Bára, full name Bára Mjöllionsdóttir. And Olafia Stefansdóttir. And, and she, she was... She was uh, uh, rather high in the, uh, what do you call it, uh, her father was a rep story and he was the mayor of the... So he married up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did. Mm. <laughs> I'm, I'm very proud of uh, being from Hans Jonathan and I talk about him very much to my children. He was uh, very brave. I think about him in that way, but not the way that he, he was black or, or maybe he was different from other people in Dubuor. I, I never think about him like that. I read a story from Dubu called To Change a Mountain. Uh, it was written by Stefan Jonsson. He was talking about blue men, and that's the, the, mm -hmm. the only word I have heard. <laughs> it's, I think it's uh, maybe more Icelandic to say he's a blue man, blau mother. A blue man arrives, and no one discriminates on the colour of his skin. The concept of race is hardly present in the old Icelandic literature, and there was not present in our language. You see, it was 
it was a foreign concept. And, and actually then when you introduce an individual of a very different race into a community, it was just accepted with open arms. The, the concept of, of, of race as an influential phenomenon in our culture is a is, is very late addition. Before that you had uh, friction, of course, between people and groups, but it was not necessarily a, a, a hint at uh, something in the genes or or the color or the character. It's only with uh, slavery and, and sugar and capitalism that this massive uh, brutality and, and fundamental distinction between categories of people, black, Caucasians, yellow or whatever, arrives. And racism, in other words, was born in, in these contexts. But in the blue light of Iceland, Hans rises up the ranks and takes over as factor of the shop. And so Hans Jonathan uh, has the strange turn of events of the object of Danish colonialism and, and property rights uh, is suddenly um, running a colonial store within the Danish Empire in, in the eastern part of Iceland. Eventually it seems that this ambiguous position, this liminality, if you like, brings uh, sort of his uh, professional career to an end. It seems that Hans Jonathan may have uh, been too lenient with the customers. He may have been too nice to them, given the interests of the store, and eventually he uh, he's declared bankrupt. He becomes a peasant, a poor man, but finally free. He made himself and uh, stole himself and refused to be uh, seen as, as property. Eighteen twenty seven, on the snow covered slopes of Djupivogur, Hans is tending to his few livestock. He falls down and dies from a stroke at age 43, leaving behind his wife and two children. Katrin and Hans had just reached their seventh anniversary, their sugar anniversary. In the years since, Hans has become a mythical figure in Iceland, but to the old Danish colonial regime, he was officially lost. Until recently, didn't he say that when he went to Copenhagen looking for documents about Hans Jonathan, mm. who, who had lived in Djupivor, they said, oh, that's where they went, where he went, because nobody in Denmark knew. knew. So in 2000, the year 2000, they had no idea in Denmark. <laughs> <laughs> the one regret that maybe he might have had was that he was still considered a slave. And I thought, you know, perhaps there's a way to address that and to not necessarily right a wrong or engage in revisionist history, but to perhaps admit that we were on the wrong side of history at that time and to posthumously declare him a free man. And what action did you take? I wrote the Prime Minister asking, I would like to request that he be declared a free person. And he did write back and 
essentially said, we can't do that. It won't change anything. Living in Denmark now and walking those streets that Hans would have walked, what are your reflections around Denmark and its its understanding of its past? The few people that I've told the story to were fairly surprised that Denmark was in the slave trade. I think about a year ago, there was a statue erected here in Copenhagen of a female slave who led a revolt in the Danish West Indies. And I think that is the first public acknowledgement of any sort of ties to slavery. It's often hard to look at your own past and acknowledge the terrible things your your country was engaged in. I have got this um, um, thing from, from him um, and this is his signature put it on on a on a envelope yeah. or or letters mm-hmm. um, it's a seal yeah mm-hmm. and it it is his uh, signature and there is just two things left from his uh, staying in Dubuor this and a violin he played violin and in his violin lives an unanswered question We've also been trying to find out who his father actually was. The assumption is that his father was the plantation owner. But there was one other person that the records uh, indicate that it could have been. The records said Hans Jonathan was the son of uh, Regina, a Negro belonging to uh, Herr Schimmelmann and his plantation. Uh, the father is not reported, but rumor has it he is the secretary with a capital S. Literally, a secretary on the plantation uh, was the father. The secretary with a capital S was Hans Gram. And once we had the name, it, it was in plain sight and, and sounded obvious. I mean, Emilia Regina might have named her son after him. Graham became a famous composer in Boston and even reinvented the musical scale. He added sol la ti to do, re, mi, fa. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti. But he's still a hypothesis yet to be tested. Hans Jonathan's surname doesn't spell out who his father is, like traditional Icelandic names. He wasn't the beneficiary of old wisdom, but he may be of new. Work is now underway to unearth ancient skeletal DNA from the Graham family that could prove the paternity. I think it would just um, complete the puzzle. Um, You know, knowing who you're descended from is, is something that I think most people are curious about and would like to know. But also, we can never fully know someone's life. Whatever all the uh, evidence we unmask and bring together, 
There is always an open space for speculation and someone we, we don't understand and, and will never understand. The Blue Man Was Black, Hans Jonathan's Slave Saga, was produced by Miyuki Yokiranta. Richard Gervin was the sound engineer, and the violin score was by Duncan Yardley. If you'd like to learn more about Hans's story, pick up Gisli Parlson's book, The Man Who Stole Himself. Find details on our website. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Join me again next week on The History Listen. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.